Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is the intro before the intro. Uh, this is my the first time I've ever done this on this show, and uh, not the last, I think. And that is to replay for you an episode from the early days of the Jazz Session. When the Jazz Session began its partnership with All About Jazz, the listenership to the show increased by quite a bit. And when I did my survey uh, of the listeners of the Jazz Session, the overwhelming number of respondents said that they had started listening at around the time I formed my partnership with All About Jazz. But I recorded a lot of shows before that time, and I think that many of you probably have never heard them. So I thought that every once in a while I would stick in uh, a, a classic from the Jazz Session archives, which go all the way back, if you can remember back this far, to 2007. Right? That's a long time ago. Uh, this particular one, this was one of the first ones that really brought some uh, uh, notoriety to the show. I think the very first one that brought some notoriety to the show was John Abercrombie. And uh, this was one of the ones that first brought comments from far and wide. And this is an interview with David Torn. So without further ado, we take you now back to 2007 and my interview with David Torn. So I don't play jazz. I'm not a swinger. My good friend Jason Crane. Now it's jazz. Now it's jazz. Now it's now it's now it's jazz. Hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is a jazz interview podcast. It features the lives and the stories of the people who play, write about, and love jazz. It's also more than just a podcast. When you visit the show's website at thejazzsession.com, you'll find interviews, live jazz news, and links to other jazz sites. My guest this time is a man of many talents. He's a film composer, and you've heard his music in Friday Night Lights, Believe in Me, The Order. He's also contributed tones and textures to films like The Departed, which won the Oscar this year for Best Picture, and the 2000 hit Traffic. Before his film days, he was known for daring musical collaborations on records like Cloud About Mercury for ECM. And he's worked as a guitarist and or producer for everyone from David Bowie and David Sylvian to John Legend and Tori Amos. His name is David Torn, and his adventurous new album on ECM sounds something like this. Thank you. 
My guest is David Torn. He's got a brand new album out soon on ECM called Presence. It features saxophonist Tim Byrne, a pianist, organist, mellotronist, and apparently bent circuitist Craig Taborn, drummer Tom Rainey, and on a one track, additional drums from Matt Chamberlain. David, thanks a lot for being here. Oh, thank you. Listen, this is not going to be a hardball interview because i got to start off by saying that I am just loving this record and it has been damaging my car speakers uh for a couple of weeks now which has been been really really fun does that does that mean that you're listening fairly loud i'm i'm listening uh obnoxiously loud oh oh i mean honestly it's it's kind of how how a record like this was made to be listened to not painfully loud but loud yeah no i'm just i'm below the pain threshold but i'm definitely the, you know the neighbors know it's on kind of loud right so on. Uh, <laughs> let me ask you first just to talk about this band uh how you put it together and uh, just what what sounds i know first of all the process of the record we can talk about that in a couple minutes but uh it just sounds like an amazing amount of listening going on on this record and uh, i wonder if you'd speak to the band and and how you guys work together um, well, um, do you want the history of how this band actually came together? That would be fantastic. I mean, um, it's it's kind of interesting and very organic, except for one element. And the inorganic element was, you know, I took a relatively long hiatus from being in bands and playing live, although I've always been working on these small imp- improvising groups, me and Will Calhoun, me, Will Calhoun, Michelle and Diggiocello, um, me and Ben Porowski and Fima Efron, and um, and a couple of things I did with Bobby Previtt and, and Tim, and uh, I kind of kind of had bailed out, and I started working for Tim as a, his mastering engineer six, seven, eight years ago, maybe. This is one of my sidelines is to do some was to do some mastering for people whose who typically can't afford to do a really full-on doctoring, mastering sessions with the kinds of budgets they have. And Tim was like one of my one of my first clients in that. We became friends very quickly. And just let me break in for one second yep. to tell ask you to tell folks who aren't in the music industry who might be listening just what mastering means. Uh, mastering is the final process of fixing or altering or leaving still the sound of a CD before it goes to the manufacturer. So records come out of the recording studio fully mixed, but often there are problems of balance between the tracks, or, or there are clicks and pops in the recording that need to be cleaned, or noise, or maybe the recording doesn't sound so great. In, in very drastic situations, maybe the recording doesn't sound so great, and the mastering engineer can actually do quite a bit to help the sound of, of a record if there is time. It's a very expensive process um, with the guys who are truly great. And most of the jazz and improvising musicians that I know don't really have the opportunity to work with 
with the great mastering engineers. So I spent quite a bit of time working on records that don't sound great as a mastering engineer in order to kind of fulfill a need for friends of mine so I could spend, you know, two or three days mastering a disc that typically they would never have the opportunity to do that. That's how one one of the ways that I met Tim. We played a gig together. He knew I had a studio. He knew I was technologically kind of savvy and asked me if I was willing, asked me if I had ever mastered. I, I had, and uh, we got it. We developed a friendship from that during the course of that friendship. And we get back to the inorganic part of this band. Tim started asking me about producing some records for him. And, you know, kind of being like his second year listening in the background, helping with the details in the studio. So we started that section of our friendship. And during this whole while, my film career was starting to really kind of move forward as a composer. And Tim was constantly saying to me, I'd play a little guitar for him in the room, well, while we were waiting for computers to do things, and he said, "Dude, we got to play some gigs. Dude, you have to play some gigs." And he just started kind of—I don't really know how to say this. He really started kind of like pestering me for playing live gigs with him. So I started playing these gigs, and he's always had like working bands. Tim has, I guess, the, the insistence of him that I continue to play guitar in public for people improvising just um, kind of took hold, and we started playing more and more gigs with his band, which this is, one of Tim's bands, right? Tim Byrne, Tom Rainey, Craig Taborn is a kind of known New York and British and European unit. And something else started occurring when I started playing with the band. It became a different thing, and I sat down. So, so there was the inor- inorganic section in that Tim was the instigator (laughs) to a large degree of me continuing to or returning to playing live, playing gigs, and recording again for myself. Why had you stopped, David? Why had you, uh, you? I mean, you said you hadn't stopped completely, but but why had you backed off so much from well, playing I, live I, 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 back, I backed off because it's so difficult to to perform live. Touring is a very difficult one. It's a very difficult life, and two, it's very difficult to organize and takes an incredible amount of time. I have become addicted to writing music and being in a room by myself and 
I, I'm very satisfied with the results of that of that um, particular musical choice, producing records, mixing records, and writing music primarily, that sees the light of day. And it kind of bypassed a lot of the pain of organizing tours, being out on the road. I don't have a small amount of equipment. I'm not a jazz guy, per se. And certainly, if I were considered to be a jazz guy, I'm not... I'm not, um, technologically, I'm not a typical jazz guy. There is quite a bit of stuff that travels around with me. Small by rock standards, but very large by jazz standards. So I stopped because it was, yeah, I had quite a few bad experiences with record companies. The last one in the year 1999 and 2000 when my Splatter Cell records came out was kind of like, it seemed at the time like the nail in the coffin, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm really not sure I want to do this anymore, and Tim was insistent that I should be doing it. And, uh, you know, after playing a few gigs with the band and realizing that there was, that not only not only did it get better each time we played, but we actually started to develop a vocabulary together that was different than anything that I've yet done but very, very satisfying to see a, a band with an improvising vocabulary, a band that trusts the moment, trusts each other to make moments happen and happens to sound pretty unique at the same time. It's a very unusual thing to find. Again, Tim's fault. You know, I didn't just happen on this. He pushed my butt until, <laughs> until, until, and then, you know, at some point he, he, he had a tour in England and he said, come on, come on the tour. Big piece of music that he was commissioned to do with, a, with his band, with Mark DeCray, Tom and Craig, and uh, the Arte saxophone quartet um, with visuals. And uh, I said, sure, I'll go. And it was awesome. <laughs> Such a great time. So you mentioned the, the vocabulary of this yep. band. Are you finding new things in your own vocabulary by playing with them? Absolutely. And, and not only do I find new things in my own vocabulary, well, I'd have to say that, that um, while that is satisfying for me, it is not the most important thing to me. It's the more important thing is the communication between the players and the fact that the, the sound itself evolves. I do find ways to grow in this or learn things about my playing in this, but it is not the most critical thing to me. The most critical thing to me is that the music itself feels satisfyingly moving forward or evolutionary in some way. At the same time, this is one of the very few bands where it's wide open to me to mine the various sonic guises that I might play in a performing situation, which I often do in recording, but in performing it's quite a bit different. Um, that, that I can actually, I really don't have to think like a guitar player with a quartet, and I'm free to sample and process the other players as they're playing and spit them out <laughs> back, back at themselves, which is, um, you know, it's very unusual. Um, it's very, it, it is satisfying is a word that comes up a lot it's very mm, it's we're always on edge especially at the beginning of a night because you never know what's going to happen <laughs> which i love 
but it it can be daunting, you know. Uh, you play two hours of music, and um, in a situation like this, you are bound to play something that is less than satisfying. It's going to happen, and you have to learn how to play with it, accept it, and play with it, and move through it. This is really one of the most rewarding things for me musically in performance since I was a kid, I think. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like music without a net. You know, they're definitely... The the only net that we have is the vocabulary, but the vocabulary itself can't really be pinned down. We keep moving it around, and uh, no one's role at any given point in time is fixed. The only net is looking at your friends in the band and hoping that they will come up with something while you aren't. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great way to put it. You said something that I really found interesting, that by not trying so hard to be a great guitar player, I've come closer to the full range of my instrument, that instrument being my imagination as much as it is the guitar. I still I still feel that. It, it is something that I have felt for quite a while. When I was younger, I often felt somehow lacking as a guitar player because I, I didn't really want to be stuck in, in any particular line except my own. And when I say younger, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I think I started with feeling like I was moving forward around the time I was like 21 or 22. I'm 53 now. And in my 30s, I was really fishing around and really felt quite, um, often felt quite lacking in the guitar department because I knew I wasn't doing, you know, uh, there, there are strange things in the world of musicians. I am not a typical guitar player. I'd get... I'd get like backhanded compliments after a gig that that somebody didn't understand where that what they were hearing, and they would say something like, "Yeah, cool sounds," and walk away. <laughs> and I'd think, I'd think, wow, <laughs> what about the music? <laughs> or you know, guitar players in particular would say stuff like that. Or uh, he can't really, you know, you'd hear a lot of things behind. You're back like, um, he can't really play the guitar in any kind of normal way, which of course isn't true, but, but it makes you feel kind of like, you know, somewhat unconfident in the world of the instrument that you play. And, and, uh, I guess it's been a, uh, you know, there have been like 20, 25 years of shedding those kinds of concerns for me and just not considering it, you know, 
and uh, learning to not consider it and just accept my imagination as the instrument. As I guess I said, wow, I just quoted myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's like looking into two mirrors at once. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, there are four fat guys there. So you're you're 53. I'm 33, and I was about 13 or 14, and uh, just getting into uh, the prog rock that was still out there in the 80s. When uh, a friend of mine gave me Cloud About Mercury, which initially he knew about because Tony Levin and Bill Bruford were on it, and we were all big Crimson fans. Yeah. But then immediately we latched on to this guitar player who we had never heard of, and uh, none of us knew anything about the world outside of progressive rock really and so and i i just remember how just blown away i was by that that record then but to hear you tell it you it sounds like you made that record at a period in your life when you you didn't feel as much like you had a musical identity and that and that now we're hearing kind of the results of of really finding yourself as a player i I think i did i did have identity i just there there's something that happens with with uh, the um, not repetition, but with experience, and that is this constant shedding of things that are unnecessary to making what one considers to be one's art. In this case, music, you know, and and I think that's been maybe that's been like a constant thread. I I felt pretty strongly about that record, and it really was it was a benchmark moment for me making that record because. Uh, Manfred gave me the opportunity to to basically not manipulate me into a musical situation. That's what I needed. I needed somebody to say, you know, you should kind of do what you want. You don't want to play with regular jazz dudes? Well, no, I don't. I want to play with people who are minded like me, people who can cross over from groovy stuff to electronics with ambient things, but there needs to be that sense of of improvisation. You know, Manfred said, well, who do you want to be in your band? And I said, well, I've already chosen the band, (laughs) and I've talked to everybody, and everybody's ready to go. It was a big, big moment for me, that record. And it does, it did mark, it, it, it was the benchmark for me as a a player and a conceiver of music because I actually I turned a corner and said now is the time I'm not going to mess around I'm going to do exactly what I need to do right now I think I still think those mixes are a little bit lacking because of the amount of time and what I didn't know about mixing at that time it's, it's you know it's very shy in the in the bass and the low end but the music is there so no I don't feel bad about that record at all in fact I quite dig it I took a couple of missteps after that, I think. <laughs> you know, but that was a benchmark, a really positive benchmark moment for me. And, uh, well, gee, funny thing, huh? Who was there for that? Iker was there. He was there for the Everyman Band. He was there for that, for that, my first solo record, which I still like for its personality, was not what I had initially intended to do. In 1984, as a solo record, I actually that was the record that I wanted Tony Levin and Jack DeJohnette to play on in '83 or '84, and uh, it logistically just couldn't occur. But um, you know, Manfred was there as a support for very large musical, the musical benchmarks in my life. It's pretty astounding that we got back together. You know. <laughs> 
So let's that brings us perfectly kind of back to the the new record presence, which is on ECM. And I know that when I'm listening to this, I'm not hearing exactly what I would have heard if someone had just hit play on the tape when the band had finished any particular take. Can you can you talk about how this record well, was made? Well, well, that's not quite true. Um, there are there are very long moments where you're hearing pretty much precisely what was played. Oh, okay. And and, and when I say long moments, I mean. You know, there are five, six-minute stretches of the longer pieces that are clearly the band that really aren't manipulated other than the way they were manipulated live. They they may sound a bit better or a bit tougher or something, but um, to do a play-by-play on where it is the band and where it isn't is a very complex thing. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I can point to very long stretches of the band pieces that... That was the band doing what, exactly what it does, and I, I wanted very much to respect those moments precisely because when the band is doing what it does well, it's remarkably capable of turning con- musical concepts, changing musical concepts just on a dime, and make those transitions feel as if somebody wrote them. one of the main features of this band for me is like is its ability to transition from one idea one concept a a riff or an arena of sound to another by itself it just does it the band does it you know so i respected those things on the record i just didn't want we have we actually have an incredible live record in the can totally live record it sounds fantastic and i dithered and and kind of vacillated about whether to deliver that to Manfred or something a little bit more considered. And I decided to mix the idea together by taking the more considered route. So we have some things that are very considered and recomposed and other things that aren't. And there's no dividing line <laughs> in the middle of a four or five minute section of pure band material may be some moment that I just felt 
needed to be created from the composer's point of view, so I did it. You know, <laughs> nope. it, it sounds simple when you say it, but what what you mean by that is that you took pieces from the various recordings and, in some cases, stuck them together to create something new. No. Is that what you mean, or how, no, how does that I, work? I, I would create new things uh, on my own in order to occasionally depends on the piece of music on the record, but sometimes I would be using exactly what they played uh, or what I played and altering it, or. I would do things like create something brand spanking new. There's a piece called Bulbs. I think it's piece number four, yeah? It was, it was, it came, there are elements of performance in it, very strong elements of the actual thing that the band starts out playing is exactly what the band played. And then I decided to loop it, and then it morphs in the, it, three minutes into the piece. It goes from um, a piece that we played, but I manipulated it both live and by myself in the studio into a piece that I played completely by myself uh, for, the, for the remaining four minutes of the piece, except I dropped some uh, drums in that Tom had played in a warm-up session for the rec- in the recording studio into the back end of the piece. So... I just felt like it it would make for a good long-term listening experience to have all these moments of trickery in there. (laughs) And for the listener to not only not divine what's been messed with and what hasn't, but to not even think about it, to not have to consider, oh, how has this been manipulated, you know? tell had i not read you know the advanced materials i never would have i never would have wondered how that all came together but i mean you did catch me assuming because there are places in there where the band literally goes from like one tune to it it's almost as if uh four guys have just walked into the room and said well let's play this instead they're just moments that change in a dime so quickly that you can't believe they're anything other than you know kind of mashed together in the studio and it sounds to hear you tell it like that's just how much the band knows each other I believe that the moments that you're talking about probably are natural moments. And I think that the changes 
the alterations that I made are quite tricky. <laughs> you know, sure. um, um, rather, rather like a little bit of a creative subterfuge going on. And I had to do an interview recently in which somebody was asking me specifically from one piece to another. And honestly, I worked so hard on this record that I had to sit down and listen to every piece with him and say, oh, this is, oh, right, okay, I did that live. I'm manipulating Tom's drums or Tim's saxophone here live. But then I also manipulate, you know, and I had to like, I had to actually like uh, make like a little map, and the map looked crazy. <laughs> like, okay, so that five minutes, did you do anything? No, I didn't do anything except for the manipulations that I did to the band while we were performing in the studio. So, and, and that's that can be very confusing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you have to know that stuff. But um, I, I like the record. I, I have a lot of respect for. For it, and uh, the band is very, 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 very visceral live, very visceral. So, well, I I, I need to make sure that I I say clearly uh, for everybody who listens to this show that it's not much less visceral on the record. I mean, for all this talking that we're doing about manipulating and throwing things together, and when you put this record in your stereo, it, it's impressive and it's fun, and parts of it are really funky, and parts of it are really gorgeous and haunting. And in any case, whatever it is to you when you listen to it, it's absolutely worth a listen. It's just well, an, an amazing I'm, record. I, I'm glad you hear that. You know, one of the things that struck me as an important post-facto fact, a post-facto factoid that came into my head was that the reason I did the manipulations and played further things by myself later is precisely because I was trying to make what the band does live is something I have ultimate respect for. Um, even when it's not the greatest performance, I still have respect for the for the the intention, the intensity, and the process of the way this band works together. And while I was working on this music, and there was quite a bit of material to go through, a good 12 hours of recorded material to, to choose from, which really takes a lot of work, I realized as I started to work on each piece, each of the band pieces, I, I just started to realize, what am I doing here? Um, I'm respecting what the band does. At the same time, I'm either addending it occasionally or altering it occasionally or completely writing something new to insert at certain points. Why am I doing this? I was doing it because I think I was trying to make the band sound to me after the fact what it feels to me like while we're playing. So... <laughs> so so I'd never let go of the respect for what I think the ideas are. I just decided that I wanted to make it sound even more like what I hear in my head when we're playing live. So to me, the sound of this record is the way the band sounds in my head live. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of uh, kind of crazy, but... Well, I have to uh, I have to say, uh, as we close, when I was 13 or 14 in my, my friend's basement uh, blasting Cloud About Mercury, I didn't imagine that someday we'd be chatting on the phone, and it's been uh, a real, real pleasure to talk to you. And, and like I said, it, it's just been an absolute joy to hear this record, and I uh, wish you all the best with it and hope that it's uh, the first of many more to come. Yeah, it is. Good in news. In, in fact, <laughs> um, yeah, are you familiar with Futurama? Yes. Okay. Good news, That's everybody. <laughs> 
That's Sync from guitarist David Torn's new album Presence on ECM Records. Until next time, you've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. Please visit the show's website at thejazzsession.com where you'll find interviews, live jazz news, and links to other jazz sites. You'll also find links to subscribe to the show. If you can, please subscribe via iTunes. It's free, and it guarantees that you'll always have the most recent episode waiting for you on your computer or MP3 player whenever you want it. I write interviews and reviews for AllAboutJazz.com, the world's largest jazz website. I invite you to check those out there, along with interviews and reviews from hundreds of other contributors. If you'd like to contact The Jazz Session, send an email to Jason at TheJazzSession.com, or call 585-473-5304. You can also join the mailing list, which you'll find at thejazzsession.com. When you join, you'll get periodic updates about the guests who appear on this show, plus other news from the jazz world. The theme music for the show is by the Respect Sextet, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. Thanks very much for listening. Remember to support live jazz whenever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. So there you have it, a classic from the Jazz Session archives. More of those on the way, because I know that uh, probably many of you never heard those shows from back in the day, as it were. Uh, That was one with David Torn, and if you like that kind of thing and you want to keep the Jazz Session both alive into the future and the record of its history alive for all time, you might want to donate. You can do that at thejazzsession.com. Thanks.